0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer.
2: You're very welcome to Monday Afternoon's Late Lunch on LMFM Radio, first show of the new month, the month of October and as is my want on the first day of the month that we are on air. I read my little saying from the calendar and it says today, I will love the light for it shows me the way, yet I'll endure the darkness for it shows me the stars. Yes, the little saying taking us into the month of October on late lunch from that lovely Divine Word missionaries calendar that I'm so lucky to be sent each year. And I really do appreciate it. And I love reading that little saying at the very start of every month. Don't forget, if you want to get in touch with us on the show, if you want to comment on anything we're talking about, 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp or text gets us right here to the studio and any occasion you want to get in touch with us and if it's out of hours I often mention it, late lunch at lmfm.ie. That's the email address we're talking about. Welcome to the show. I hope you had a nice weekend. I took it easy the weekend, uh, to be honest with you. I was a little bit under the weather, didn't do much, watched a lot of TV, especially sporting TV, I have to say. And what about the Ryder Cup, folks? Oh, my word. I know if you're a non-golfer, it probably means nothing to you or a non-sports person. But what a performance it was by Team Europe. The Ryder Cup is a biennial competition that takes place between uh, the Europeans. uh, Golfers, the best in Europe and the best in the USA. America won it two years ago. They actually hammered Europe in Whistling Straits and it it, it moves from continent to continent. So it was in America last time, in Europe this time, and uh, in Italy for the first time ever in Italy. And I can tell you that it was some performance uh, by the Europeans. They absolutely, well, I nearly say they romped the victory. I know it got tight in the end yesterday, but Europe won it very, very comfortably in the end indeed. I think it was, what, 16 to 11 or something around that. But they won it. And, of course, we had two Irish men on the team. Rory McElroy, he was absolutely superb. And uh, we also had... Uh, of course Shane Lowry and I have to say Shane what a man he is it looked like Shane was in charge of a local junior football club and involved with a junior football team as well to be honest with you but anyway well done to the two Irishmen and all on the team and Captain Luke Donald it was a great win for the European side now let's have our first chat of the week on the show and I want to say to you if you're having your dinner at the minute or you're a bit squeamish or whatever this might not just suit you but you know, when we die and we're all going through it with some stage or other, uh, you have the option of being buried, being cremated, composted. Yes, your body can be composted as well. But there's something new in town here in Ireland. It's called Aquamation. And we are joined on the show today by somebody I love chatting to. She's a mortician and her business is known as Pure Reflections. Based in County Mead, Elizabeth Oakes is standing by. Afternoon, Elizabeth.
3: Hi how are you? Thanks for having me on the show Jerry.
2: Not at all. Thank you for joining me today on Late Lunch. So for listeners who don't know what this is about, what is aquamation?
3: So aquamation is also known as water cremation or resonation. So as traditionally would have happened with flame cremation, this is now a very eco-friendly and gentle alternative to flame cremation and burial. We use 95% water and 5% of an alkaline solution to bring the body, or to speed up the decomposition. Um, This is all done automatically in our facility there in Navan and County Mead.
2: And where did you come across this?
3: Well, when I was 18, I went to America and I studied mortuary science. It's a three-year degree programme over there. And I was very lucky in that I got um, a tour of the Body Donation Programme in UCLA, and that was back in 2004. And they were using this technology back then as part of the Body Donation Programme, and they used it because of its green credentials. So it's something then that just sat with me for a long time, and this facility is actually the first facility of its type in Europe.
2: So the machine you imported from the States and you've set it up in Navin and this machine does uh, what you mentioned there. So um, when a person passes and you have the body, you put the body into the machine, the full body into the machine, how long does it take for the alkaline solution to work on the body that all of the flesh, etc. is gone?
3: It takes around three and a half to four hours. It just depends if the body has been embalmed or not. And yet, as you say, Basically, it just brings our body back to our chemical components, which are amino acids, peptides, sugars, and salts. So what's left when we open the machine are the bones of your loved one. Uh, Similar to flame cremation, with flame cremation, what they consider ash, they burn the flesh off the bones in in a flame cremator, whereas we use the water to, I suppose, dissolve the flesh off of the bones. Um, but it's the exact same thing that you get back in your urn, which are the bones of your loved one, which are considered ash. Um, but as I say, ours is just very environmentally friendly. It's a very gentle process. We're having an opening day in the facility on the 18th of November so that the public can actually come, see the facility, see the machine, understand the whole process to so just demystify death, I guess, because people are a lot more open and forward about talking about death, talking about funeral plans and just having their wishes in order, I guess.
2: So when all the flesh and all that st- type of stuff dissolves and is gone, a couple of questions. What happens and what state is the liquid in afterwards? How how pure is that?
3: So once the liquid we call it effluent, it leaves our machine. We have a specialised water treatment plant on site. So the water goes through multiple levels of filtration and ultimately sterilisation. Um, and the water is independently tested to ensure that it is completely sterile before it's released back to the system.
2: So it's re- it's clean, very clean, you're saying, when it goes... And does it go down into the sewage system and out the drains as it would from our sink or our bath or whatever?
4: Yes, that's
3: correct. But as I say, it's completely sterile. It's actually, in many cases, it's cleaner than the water that would come into the system.
2: There you go. What about the bones? What do you do there and do you handle that?
3: Yes, we handle it. So when we pull out the tray, the bones are what's left because that's inorganic. They are then put into a dryer to dry for about an hour and a half to two hours. Once that's complete, they go into what's called a cremulator and that's then what processes the bones down to the white fine powder that's put into the urn and given back to the family.
2: So there you are, just similar to a cremation, ashes there, but you get the uh, the ground up bones back to uh, the family in, in, in a similar uh, vein. Um, the, the For families going to a crematorium, people will be familiar with that, what happens there. Do you do a same th- the same thing? You know what I mean? Do you provide like a little service in your premises where people see, uh, the, do they see the coffin or whatever? Or the, what, what happens before it goes into the machine?
3: Yeah, so we have a chapel on site and the family come there. You have an hour's use of the chapel as part of our service. So you can have your final committal service there or if you want to have your full Service, celebrant-led or priest-led, whatever the family decides, that's all available on site.
2: And how do you tie in with undertakers or do you tie in with under? I'm sure you have to around the country. Is that the way it works?
3: Yes, it's just similar to people going in requesting burial or cremation. We're affiliated with all the funeral directors in the country. So any family can go in now and they can request resumation. And it's just the same, um, the funeral director will bring you to our facility instead of to another facility.
2: Now, what about metal in the body? What about implants? What about teeth, hip replacements, stuff like that? What happens? Is That has to be left over. That doesn't dissolve, does it? No,
3: that would not dissolve. And in actual fact, any prosthetics that go through the machine, they come out completely sterile and as clean and as good as the day that they were implanted. So most of the time in cremators in and in our facility, the, the prosthetics would be recycled. But I would hope in time that because these prosthetics are completely re-implantable, shall we say, they're, they're, they're perfect, that maybe we could do something in the future with that, with I- donating them back.
2: There you go. You could be benefiting from somebody else's um, good fortune at the time to get whatever put into their bodies, and they'll come back round another time round. I don't see anything wrong with that. If it works, it works. Uh, why not? Well,
3: it's just like I suppose people donate their kidneys and yeah. their lungs and their yeah. hearts. So you know, why not donate it for steady? If it's
2: <laughs> very useful. true, the, you're on the money there for sure. What's you know you're having this open day? I know on the eighteenth of November. What's the take-up been like so far far, or the reaction to it, Elizabeth?
3: We've had an unbelievable reaction um, and inquiries. We're getting at least 20 inquiries every day about it. So, we only opened our doors last Monday and we had three funerals um, last week. So, as I say, definitely it will take time and until people understand the process and know that it's available, you know, it definitely will be slower to start. But that's why we're having our opening day on the 19th of November for the public so that they can come and understand exactly what it is that we have to offer.
2: That's interesting. And, and the other p- point about this is uh, that it's eco-friendly. Like if you're into this during your lifetime and more of us are going to have to be as, as the years move on to help this little planet of ours, this is probably the most eco-friendly way of saying goodbye, your last act
3: that's it there's no carbon emissions there's no mercury goes into the atmosphere as i say it's very clean it's very green and it's it's very gentle on the body also how,
2: um, how is it uh you know going down it began in the states is it something now that's in other countries worldwide and and you know taking up a fair share of the market when you compare it to burials in the ground or cremations
3: Well, in actual fact, I was only talking to a funeral director in the USA last week and he has both a flame cremator and now a resumator and he said that since he's got his resumator machine in and it's available to the people, there's a 95% take-up over the flame cremation
2: now. Isn't that something else? So it just shows you it is really taking off and you're the first in Ireland with it. You mentioned about four hours or so. How many of us can you do away with in a day?
3: Well, it depends how many hours we want to
2: work, Kelly <laughs> So if you, if, if, what you're saying basically is, what I'm trying to get at is, do you need to clean and reset the machine? Does that take time before you, you know, do another one?
3: Well, as I said, once we open the door of the machine, the machine inside is completely sterile. We do wash it down and clean it, but that is maybe 10 or 20 minutes to, to do that. But in a sense the alkaline and the water completely sterilises the inside of the machine after the process
2: So look the, you can turn it round quickly, that's basically it Yes um, I'm just thinking of the religious saying, you know, remember uh, especially around Ash Wednesday remember man thou art but dust and unto dust thou shalt return they're going to have to rewrite that now remember man or woman there are, thou art but water and unto water thou <laughs> shalt return
3: Well, I think the whole dust is the the bones that are put into the... Yes, so it's still there. It's still there. And in actual fact, um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu there earlier last year, he was resumated also in South Africa.
2: Right, so he opted for this himself. Yeah, be uh, a, a very important man uh, in in terms of, of of the world and and what happened in South Africa, of course. Yes, I saw uh, Luke O'Neill was been writing about it recently in his column in the Independent. He gave you a shout out too, and he's he's a, a big fan of it.
3: He is a big fan of it. I actually have never spoken to the man myself, but it's on my it's on my list.
2: Oh, yeah, no, he, he gave you a, a real thumbs up and the process itself, indeed. Uh, he he actually likes it. He, he really, really does. I think this is so interesting and you're certainly on the money. This was in your mind for a while, wasn't it? It took a little time to get it up and running. Why was that?
3: It's after taking six years to get to this point. So, yeah, it definitely has taken time and I suppose the two years of COVID didn't yeah. help the situation. Just... We're the only now regulated sector of the funeral industry um, because our water has to be tested. We had to go through three years of testing with Irish water to to get our discharge licence. So, as I say, there's just been a huge amount of thought and planning and everything that went into this because I really wanted to make sure that it's, it's right. You know, I want to make yeah. sure everything is perfect. And, and it is
2: now, thank God. No, well done Tian. you. And I can understand uh, a lot of paperwork and a lot of to and froing before you got the nod. But you are fully approved now. And off you go. If you're interested, folks, and you're listening to us today, purereflections.ie is the website. That's purereflections.ie. And that open day is on the 18th of November. Where are you in Navin? Whereabouts are you?
3: Up on Flower Hill,
2: good stuff so there you are no bother to find it for sure anyway you're a great woman I always said it. give a busy woman a task and she'll get it done how many children is it now number six was it recently
3: <laughs> I have six children now under the age of seven Jerry. so it's been one one a year ever since I decided to go with this whole progr- program program and process of the water cremation. It's been keeping me busy.
2: Now I know the real reason. Don't tell me about red uh, red tape or or forms or like that. Six <laughs> of them under seven. My oh my! It must be fantastic, though. It must be just never ending, is it? In the uh, in the house with them.
3: Oh my God! It's now ne- we're absolutely blessed. They the, from first thing in the morning. I tell you. Um, the noise levels are pretty high in our house, but we're, we're, I think we're immune to them at this stage. Yeah. I see it when other people come in, they go grey in the face.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine me, Chambers. I don't know how you do it, but you're looking, you have youth on your side anyway. And the other thing about you, I know when you had uh, a number of the children, you're not a woman for sitting round. You didn't take the full maternity leave.
3: No, Mark, I just bring the kids with me, whichever one, the, the latest one. So I breastfeed them all and they just, um, I take usually a week. With the last child I had there eight weeks ago, I took a month's maternity leave. So uh, yeah, they, we don't, I don't sit around, I can tell you that
2: much. No, you certainly don't for sure. You're a a real good sort, I have to say. Well, listen, well done to you, Elizabeth, on this. It's called Pure Reflections again, purereflections.ie, open day the 18th of November, and it's something that is certainly going to grow and grow over the weeks, years and months ahead. Thank you so much for taking a call on the show today. Great to talk to you again. Thank you, Jerry. Appreciate that. Thank you. Not at all. Bye. That's uh, mortician, Elizabeth Oaks. there with Pure Reflections is the name of the business. And it is a, a new system of saying our final goodbye to this world of ours. Resumation is the process. And uh, there you go. I'll leave it with you. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. What do you think? If you have any thoughts, we'd love to hear from you. 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp or text. Would you opt for it? Yes, thanks for your comments to the show. Oh eight six eighteen hundred six five eight by WhatsApp or text is the number. Mark was on to say, a "Very interesting, great idea, and a clean way to go, and would help with the limited number of grave plots available." Thanks indeed for that one, Mark. Uh, Desi's been on to correct me. He says there was only one Irishman on the Ryder Cup team, Louise, and that was Shane Lowry, that Rory McIlroy. Wouldn't play on an Irish team. I'd st- Rory McIlroy's an Irishman in my book. You mm. know. If you're born on this island, you're an Irishman. It's simple as that, you know, at the end of the day. But look, Desi, you're entitled to your, your views on, on that one for sure. Um, what was it to say, Louise? That's, it is interesting, uh, Elizabeth Oaks, isn't it? The, the yeah. New, it is. It's very interesting. Mm. It, it, it's something different I think, completely. I
4: think a lot of people would like to find out more about
2: it. Mm. I, I, I'm sure they mm. will as as time goes by.
4: And it would be like you look at the size of some cemeteries.
2: Yeah. And, and
4: you know the amount of land used on graves yes
2: land. and and, and that's a good point made yeah, by mark it'll point. certainly save on that sort of in a way tied in with this i was reading a, an interesting article the weekend i think it's in the the economist or whatever and um, it's almost assured that human beings will be living to the age of 120 in the not too distant future what about that why because they reckon with all the new science and how we should live our lives, a clean type of life and that, and with the drugs and everything now available, that it'll become the norm to go beyond 100 and in fact, up to 120 years of age. Mm. Now, living well is what mm. they're saying. That's the thing. There's one um, thing about living, but living well, they're saying and to And what that about age. climate change? Well, mm-hmm. sure, that has to be dealt with for sure. But uh, there's quite a view that this is going to happen. I think we, me- I remember mentioning some time ago on the show, a few years ago, that the a child born within the last decade mm. will certainly be nearly assured of living to 100. Anyway, many children born. But now they're saying that it'll go to 120. I,
4: uh, it, I don't think I'd like to live to 120. Oh,
2: it's it's, it's an, an enormous age, isn't it? Really? Yeah. It it is. It's huge. When you think that, you know, uh, life expectancy was at one stage in what the high forties into the fifties. To talk about putting another seventy years onto that, hundred and twenty, wow.
4: Well, how come then they're they're saying on one, you know, somebody's going, oh well, we're not going to live because of all the ultra processed foods Mm. we're not eating healthily Mm. and now they're saying no actually yeah we will live to 120
2: well I think if you you take on board all the advice about eating and minding yourself and not smoking and not drinking and that and exercising and all that type of thing With the science that we have, yes, you'll be in that bracket. But um, I suppose if you burn the candle at both ends, Mm. (laughs) you won't be doing the 120 thing. But I often say it is about quality, isn't it? It's about quality, probably not quantity of life, uh, to be honest. But anyway, just an interesting little article got me thinking. I said I might mention it on the show this afternoon that 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 was the case. And with life. Another thing about life, I know, I spotted as well. Uh, on another aspect or another branch of science, the scientists believe there is life elsewhere. Oh yeah, in the in in the universe. I would too. Yeah, they say naive not to. They're nearly sure now there is life elsewhere. I wonder, do they know about us? We don't know about them. Do they know about us?
4: <laughs> say they're laughing at us.
2: You know, remember the if our mash gets mash. <laughs>
4: yeah. so they all, mightn't want to know about. us.
2: Well, they're probably looking down and thinking, what a bloody mess that crowd are making Nana, of Nana. that little planet of theirs. I'd say that's certainly on the minds. You're not wrong there, to be honest. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the story of the XL American bully, the dog in the UK that had been involved in a number of attacks and in- ended in the... Uh, death of a man near Birmingham was shocking really well the UK government uh, they reacted immediately they banned the breed over there but a lot of people and organisations involved with dogs um, don't agree with the decision they believe it's actually a knee-jerk reaction Uh, writing about it recently has been one of the best known vets in this country and I'm delighted to welcome him to late lunch Pete Wedderburn thank you for joining me Thanks very much for asking me to talk to you. Not at all. Do you concur with the view of the likes of uh, the Battersea Dogs Trust, the Kennel Club, the British Veterinary Association in the UK about this ban?
5: I do agree with them because the problem is, you see, they tried a ban before, um, about 20 years ago. Um, They banned the pit bulls. Japanese Tozas, Dogo Argentinos, and Fila brasileiros dogs you may not have even heard of. But they basically banned a bunch of large, muscular dogs. And the problem is that that just didn't help, because what happened was there were lots of large, muscular dogs that resembled those breeds that were then seized by the authorities. But in actual fact, those individual dogs were very good-natured family pets. And so the people whose dogs had been seized, well, they they appealed... And so the dogs just stayed in detention for months and years. And it was just a huge waste of resources. And meanwhile, people who wanted big dogs to terrorise other people with, they kept on doing it.
2: So it went underground. Is that what you're saying to me, really? That's really what happened. And also, like, it's very hard
5: to actually define a breed. It's not like you're, you know, it's not like you can do a simple genetics test to prove a dog is that breed. It's much more complex than that. It's to do with the appearance, the size, um, uh, different features, the size of its ears, length of its muzzle. So it's quite subjective. And that means that banning a breed is much, much more complicated than it sounds.
2: Now, I've spoken about this in the past here on the show, and the view I always got, especially for people involved in the dog training game, was that really it came down to the owners, that when dogs actually, you know, crossed that line, that they went back and said, really, Jerry, you know, the owner needs training. What's your view on that?
5: I agree with that completely. If you look into the detail of any of the bad attacks that have happened, nearly always in the background... There were incidents leading up to the final fatality, incidents where the dogs were noted to be out of control, where there had been less serious bites, perhaps. And basically, these were just brushed under the carpet. And in most cases, um, if humans had acted properly responsible, responsibly, then, then, then the attacks wouldn't have happened at all.
2: What's the situation elsewhere, Pete, uh, you know, besides the UK? Let's say across Europe, we are still, of course, in the EU. Um, is it more difficult there for a start to buy a dog? Is there any prerequisite there? What's your information?
5: Yeah, well, it it does vary widely. Uh, I think it's a, it's a universal issue right now, This the, the concern about dog attacks. And there's like dozens of countries have tried different ways of dealing with it. But the ones that seem to be most successful are countries like Germany, where you actually have to buy a dog license. And before you get your first dog license, you have to get a certificate in dog handling. And that includes a theoretical exam and a practical exam. So in Germany, you can't have a dog without learning about looking after a dog. And that seems to make good sense to me. And the other thing is that in other parts of Germany, they have compulsory third-party insurance. Um, and that especially applies to dogs that are taller than 40 centimetres. In other words, if you do happen to have a large muscular dog, at the very least then, if their dog does bite somebody, then they can, they can get a claim against your insurance and they can be recompensed to some extent. So that seems to be a fairly progressive kind of way of dealing with things. And they have a similar thing in Spain as well, with compulsory dog um, licences, and as well as that, compulsory third-party insurance. Just like people have to have third-party insurance for their dogs, sorry, for their cars, it's the same idea, that you should have compulsory third-party insurance for your big dog.
2: There's a lot of merit in what you say there, isn't there? And especially, I suppose, when you bring it back home to Ireland. I think, um, is it right to say that nearly half of dog owners, number one, don't actually pay that dog licence? It's only 20 quid.
5: Yeah, well, it's a... That's that's true. And and there's a, a real mess in this country to the extent that it's compulsory to have all dogs microchipped and it's compulsory to have all dogs with a license. But those so the government is, is is, if you like, in charge of two databases, one with all the microchipped dogs and one with all the dog licensed dogs. But they don't talk to each other at all, those two those two databases. So we've got two entirely separate databases of the volunteers who agree to get the dogs microchipped and the volunteers who agree to get the dogs licensed. And there's nothing compulsory about it. It's only compulsory in the law. In reality, people just do what they want and it's not enforced.
2: Oh, it's, a, it's a trait that runs through many things, Pete, in this country. We bring in laws and they aren't enforced and we can't enforce them either. I know that the compulsory muzzling for a number of breeds here, restricted breeds, should I call them, is a fact in Ireland. I take it that there's little enforcement there either.
5: Well, I mean, I think I can ask the listeners, do any of them ever see these breeds in public without a muzzle? Uh, Doberman, German Shepherd, Staffordshire Bull Terrier, and there's some other ones as well. Like, we all know that you often see these dogs out without muzzles. And again, that's just another law that sounded good in theory, but in practice it's just ignored. And, you know, that's the wrong way to do things. We need to find a way of dealing with these large, muscular, powerful dogs that everybody agrees with so that we have societal buy-in. Once you get everybody saying, yeah, that's a really good idea, Um, let's have that law and let's enforce it, that's when you make progress. But not if you have ideas that sound like a good idea but just don't work in practice. There's no point in doing that.
2: Is there any work going on in this area? First of all, to get those two computer systems talking to each other, the licence and the chipping, and some of the other points you make there. Is there anything happening at the moment? Well, funny enough,
5: in the last year, there's been an interdepartmental working group that's been in government, and they've they've been looking at control of dogs, and what they've said they'll do is doubling the number of dog wardens. In other words, then they'll be able to enforce the laws that aren't enforced and as well as that they're talking about um, getting better coordination between those two databases so that's certainly something which I mean the government is well aware of this but as is often the case actually translating awareness into action is is still quite difficult because people may agree on ideas and suddenly some department gets told well okay you can do that but it's going to cost you five million or whatever and they're going to go say well where are we going to get that money from so The ideas and the enthusiasm and the determination to make changes there, but whether that's going to be backed up by actual action, well, that's a good question.
2: Uh, and and again, if it isn't uh, until the next incident happens and then, you know, there's an outpouring of, you know, commentary, etc. And there's a, a a commitment to do something. We should be ahead, really, of the posse here. I'd love to see this happening because I'm a, an avid dog owner myself and I have been all my life. Um, come back to the point of, of, of these dogs and large dogs. Is it fair to say that in certain circumstances where people don't have, let's say, the space or they don't have the wherewithal because of their lives to exercise these creatures enough or uh, give them what they need in terms of physical activity, is there a case to be made that there are certainly people who shouldn't keep these type of dogs?
5: Well, I, I would agree with you. I think that in the individualistic society that we live in, where people... Value, self-expression, and freedom—if you like—it's very hard to say you can't do that. Just as it'd be hard to say to somebody, you know, you, you you can't have babies because you don't like the way you live your life. Therefore, we're going to sterilise you. Mm. you. You can't have dogs because you don't think you're the right kind of person to have dogs. We don't think you should do, uh, you know, um, drive that kind of car because you think you're the wrong kind of person. You know, we, we don't live in a system. You'd have to live under a fascist state for that to become reality. Yes. I don't think any of us really want that.
2: No, absolutely. I, but I'm not saying that. But then it comes down to the individual person to look, perhaps, and take responsibility at their circumstances. That if you can't give a large creature like that the space of the home or the exercise it needs, you know, and, and it's hard to. I, I know what you're saying there, and I don't want to restrict anybody, but there are circumstances and people that really... It, it doesn't add up, does it, for them to have a large, muscular, rare breed of dog in circumstances like that?
5: No, well, I, I think probably what it all goes back to is education. Yes. And I, I think one of the really positive things the government could do is to extend the scheme that was started by the ISPCA, where they set up a, a national school curriculum on animal welfare and animal care. And it went out to all the Educate Together schools and it has been used there. But the government should extend that to all national schools so that children grow up understanding, you know, first of all, the animals are sentient creatures that you, you often to be cruel to. So they, first of all, they get that. But secondly, the children understand that pets are expensive and time-consuming and energy-consuming, so that when it comes to their turn to have to have pets, that they make wise decisions rather than just going with the, the trendiest um, whatever seems to be doing the buzz at the time, which is what's going on with these XL bullies, I'm afraid.
2: Yeah, and I have to echo the words of our regular vet here on the show, Sinead Kelly, who often said, like, getting a dog or or a pet, especially a dog, uh, is like bringing a baby or a child into your home. You mentioned babies and children a moment ago. It's a massive responsibility, Pete.
5: And it never goes away. Like, 24 hours, you know, you have to be there for the animal all the time. And it's a big cost, too. You know, you have Mm. to remember that. It's not, nothing's for free, especially not a a, a large animal that needs to be fed every day. That, you know, if you go away on holidays, has to go into boarding kennels. And if you're, um, if you get sick, you have to pay the the medical bills. There's no National Health Service or medical card for pets. Mm. So it's expensive.
2: It certainly is. Coming back Mm. to the point of our discussion, you wouldn't. It's that
5: time of the year
1: Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: An Annie breed, would you? You'd leave it open season?
5: I would leave it open season. I would focus on educating people so that, so that, so that it becomes common sense not to get a dog that's not fitting for you. That's, that's, the, that's the best answer.
2: Mm. And of course uh, we recall Mm. like during Covid times a lot of people took dogs on board and uh, we hear in recent times many uh, because of what you've just mentioned a moment ago responsibility and going back to work haven't been able to mind them and and that is certainly understandable too. It's very interesting Mm. I love uh, what you mentioned there about Germany and Spain and what's happening over there I think we should have a look at that from an Irish perspective that would be a good move in the context of this review.
5: As as you said, we should be making wise decisions based on evidence at a time when there's not a great deal of pressure. Because if we don't do that, then somebody may well be badly mauled by a dog and the government may feel pressurised to make a quick decision and introduce bad legislation that that just then isn't enforced. And that's not
2: helpful at all. Certainly not. Certainly Mm. not. Pete, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for asking me on again. appreciate that. Not at all. Take care of yourself. That's Pete Wedderburn there, one of our most famous vets. What do you think? What do you think about what we've been talking about in terms of dogs and the rare breeds and what they do in Spain and Germany? First of all, before you get your dog license, you have to be trained. You have to do. You have to be trained in dog handling. You have to take a, a wee test as well and compulsory third-party insurance for dogs of a certain breed and size. You know, what do you think about that? And Pete mentioned there the breeds that we have in this country. They're supposed to be muzzled, but has anyone ever seen them muzzled? I'd love to hear from you. If anything to say on what we've just been talking about with Pete Wedderburn, get in touch with me. 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp or text. That's 086-1800-658 is the number if you want to comment today. You know, I... I have to tell you that my family and my dad, Brendan, dogs, oh my word, it was his life. And we were introduced to them, I was, from when I was a small child. And I've loved dogs all my life. Always have had dogs as well. And I have the greatest respect for them. Uh, I have Messi at the moment. He's 13 now. Would you believe our friend is 13? He is. And he's slowing up a bit like myself. He's getting grey and everything. But you know, even with the grandchildren in the house, and he's so placid, he's so lovely with children. I would never trust that dog. And I've never trusted any dog I ever had. And I'd say that to you no matter what you think of your dog in the context of small children or children with them, you just never know. And I got that from my father many moons ago, and it's always stayed with me. And I'd pass it on to you today for what it's worth. You just cannot trust them, no matter how kind or uh, docile you think they are. 086 1800 658 by WhatsApp or text. Let's be hearing from you. Amy Winehouse and Valerie on your late lunch this Monday afternoon. Thanks for all your comments. Interesting indeed about the dog breeds and what should be done. Uh, Olive, lovely picture of Poppy. Poor Poppy has a light shade on. You know the light shade round the head, so she can't go near the little procedure she had. I think she was spayed. Olive says she won't have pups, uh, but Olive agrees hundred percent. Wouldn't trust any dog with a child, Jerry. So does Angela, one hundred percent. Jerry, never ever leave a child alone with a dog. I actually can't uh, take it when I see those YouTube videos with babies and children along with dogs. Here's an interesting one from another listener. We have numerous dogs here. French bulldogs, micro bullies, two pocket bullies and three XL bullies. And my son is a pit bull. I couldn't say a bad word about them. They're all show dogs and all live in the house and also kennels outside. They are badly portrayed by the media. Many dog attacks happen in this country and many other countries. But it is highlighted more so when it involves the bully breed or pit bulls. Or they put it down as a bully type or pit bull type dog. Thanks indeed for that comment. I see where you're coming from as well. And again, it goes back to the point the owners and the responsibility owners have and responsible owners. And, uh, you know, your comment is really, really valid. Thanks for sending it in to me. Here's on the opposite end of the scale from another listener. Hi, Jerry. I was in a caravan park through the summer, which was full of children. I showed my concern for a dangerous breed of dog to its owner in a very nice way. But she told me it was my fault for showing my fear to her dog that I upset him. I take it that's why the dog was a bit aggressive or whatever, or barking at you. They say dogs can pick up fear, can pick up feelings from people. They do say that for sure. But, you know, you went about your business there in a a very nice type of way. And um, I don't think that explains away, you know, your concerns for the children there either. But thanks indeed. We're Getting in touch with us if you've anything to say, don't forget it's 086 1800 658 by WhatsApp or text. Have you have a dog of your own, Louise? As I mentioned, I have Messi as well. Um, uh, she had a dog of her own. If you find what well, describe the dog, so no, yeah, you have a fella, he's he's inclined to go and come, isn't he? But anyway, what have you? What type of Papa dog have, have you? Mm-hmm. Have you ever had a fear of, it, of a dog?
4: Yeah. Have I you? have fear. Yeah, I have a big fear of dogs. Have you? Yeah, I got bitten as a child.
2: Did you tell me that before? I mm-hmm. can't remember that. Did you? hmm But you've no fear of your own fella? No.
4: No. No. But and, if, 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 had if do- I'd be very had... wary if I'm on the beach around and a dog comes, you know, a dog kind of comes towards me, I'd get a little yeah. bit get nervous.
2: But but you've had dogs since of your own and, and no issues with that.
4: Oh, but. yeah. Yeah. No, I was just, it was, I was a kid. I was running past someone's yeah. house in an estate and a oh. dog came out and
2: bit me. That would leave a mark for life for sure. Mm. And that's understandable. So if you if you see other dogs of that you're oh, very you're, nervous. Are you? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well that's understandable, isn't it? Mm. It really is. Uh, what do you think of P. Wedderborn there? He's talking, he was talking about what they do in uh, Spain and Germany as well, where you have to, before you get a dog, you know, you get some training. Uh, you do a little test or whatever then you get your dog licence and your dog as well and insurance mm. for the bigger breeds of dogs you know yeah, what I mean yeah. that you must have insurance there's this merit in that do, as well is I,
4: I agree with you when you said you couldn't trust a dog you wouldn't trust yeah. a dog mm. and and look at it's in them it's in all dogs it's mm. just by nature yeah but um, you know there's some of the the, the, the so called like Alsatians and, and yes. you know German Shepherds that are just they are gorgeous yeah you and know, if they're treated right and trained right, they're... People just, absolutely love to them
2: and, and and all breeds. And I think it does come to that as well. There's another one just come into us. Anyone with common sense would not get a dog that big and muscular that you don't know for sure is under your control. There's a status symbol going about to be seen with such a dog to look, look tough outwardly. You can't educate those whose sole purpose of having these dogs is to be ready to fight and look scary enough to warn off others. Another valid point there made by Alyssa. Mm-hmm or two, you know, uh, when it comes to certain breeds. Uh, but anyway, it's been reviewed. You heard Pete saying that anyway. The government, I hope they, you know, do this review and encompass what he was even talking about today and look elsewhere in Europe and come forward with a policy because, as you know, we, we mentioned it before about many things in this country. You know, dog fouling on the streets, yeah. litter or whatever. How many fines are ever issued, you know? <laughs> Very how, hard to prove. Oh yeah, but yeah. how many people who don't have a dog licence are pulled up over? Mm. How many people who don't have the, the certain breeds that Pete mentioned muzzled are ever tackled about? none really you I know? think
4: they used to do I don't know whether they still do um, it was a very good scheme where before you got a dog um, certain rescue centres it let you kind of foster yes you know, so that you your eyes are opened as to all the care and that's yeah, needed
2: Yeah, and there is an awful lot that's a for a sure lot. Yeah. Yeah. 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp or text gets us on the show up next the money doctor John Lowe is here he's talking about savings and pensions the man who knows all about money joins me John Lowe the money doctor afternoon good
0: afternoon Cherry as always
2: as always is right John I was talking just before the break teen you up there about the NTMA the increases in the state savings products yeah. there's been a decent jump hasn't there
0: Well, about time. Um, And in fact, all the other deposit takers used to give out about the NTMA. You know, bear in mind that the NTMA stands for the National Treasury Management Agency. A lot of people get confused with on post bonds. They think that it's the on post. But on post is just literally a conduit. The NTMA is a government body that looks after all government money, which includes all that money that's in uh, on post and on post money so um yeah they up there they they even up the prize bonds jerry you'll be very pleased to know just mm. uh, 4.4 4 billion in prize bonds uh of which 0.35 percent of the fund is used to pay out prizes prizes uh, every week that's been uh, tripled to one percent from uh, yesterday actually from the 1st of October mm. so if you have any prize bonds you're now going to be three times as as, as uh, likely to, to win a prize
2: <laughs> Terrific and John <laughs> the, the percentages they're offering the three year savings bond now 4% the five year 9% the six year mm. instalment savings 10% and the big one the ten year national solidarity bond if you can put your money away for ten years is now 22% all these are tax free <laughs>
0: They're all tax-free, but, I mean, again, what you really need to do, I mean, for instance, that 10-year solidarity bond is 22%. It sounds great, tax-free, into your fist. But when you analyze it, if you grossed it up and did it on an annual basis, it's 3%. For instance, Bank of Ireland are offering uh, a 12-month account now, uh, up to 30,000 max, unfortunately, um, which is uh, 3%. At the end of 12 months, that 3% goes down to 1%. But you've got 30,000 and 3%, which is the same as a solidarity fund, except you don't have to wait 10 years for it.
2: Okay, so that's worth looking at if you're looking for something for a year. And you will pay Dart though, on the bank savings.
0: You will, of course. But that 3% has uh, also worked out as, as, as um, you know, net. So you're looking at about 2.24% 2. Uh, 2. Uh, net, which is per annum on the solidarity bond.
2: Do you think, John, this announcement on the first of October may edge the banks to maybe up it a little more, offer more to customers? Well,
0: they can because they're still getting far more. You remember the the differential between what they charge on mortgages and loans, in particular the the personal loans, which is you know ten, fifteen, twenty percent in some cases, uh, compared to what they're offering on deposit is huge. Um, you know, you've got to also bear in mind that they will be aware that the stock market returns, like, from 1991 to 2020. That's 30 years. The average annual growth was 10.72%. 10.72%. Even, even
2: though you'll have these dips in there, when you average it out, it's still done the business. That's yeah. a fantastic return, isn't so, it?
0: So, basically, you know, you, you stay put. All those people, for instance, coronavirus... Um, hit you know, three years ago and 20-30% was wiped off and they panicked they took the money out, they put it into a cautious fund and that was the wrong thing to do because they missed the rebound six months later it all
2: came back it just shows you, you have to have the bottle for it, hold the nerve and don't, uh, don't cash in. You have to be a Tottenham Hotspur yeah. supporter, oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> holding your nerve.
0: <laughs> well, Manchester United are the new Tottenham Hotspur. <laughs> well,
2: I think it's looking like it, John. John, what about, uh, let's talk about pensions, because I know last week there was a huge focus in the country on yeah. pensions and you've been banging on about this for years. The state pension, John, is not going to keep uh, very many people in much in the future, is it?
0: You know, Jerry, when I was a banker, and that wasn't yesterday, um, the bank manager retired at 65, and six months later, he was dead. That was the norm, mm. because, you know, you didn't expect to have to pay uh, a state pension uh, for these people who were retiring, because their longevity wasn't that long. Yes. Today, both genders are living until mid-80s and beyond, and therefore, we're living longer, fitter, healthier, and... You know, there's just more of us. So, you know, for the first time with the consensus there recently where they discovered we've got 5 million on, on, in, in the Isle of Ireland, um, of, of that, 800,000 are citizens who have reached pension age of over 66. And, and that's like the, the fastest growing sector. So in less than, you know, 25 years' time, we'll have three times that number, 1.8 million. And yet, at the moment, last year for every person who retired, there were five workers who funded each retiree, basically, uh, put money into the exchequer funds and they pay out the €265.30 a, a week. In, in 25 years' time, Jared, there'll be two. So it's not possible, it's physically not possible that there's going to be money there. And where are we getting the money from? We're already well over borrowed at this stage, national debts of all countries. Are, are, um, are woeful. I mean, you look at America uh, when Barack Obama was in, which wasn't yesterday either, uh, but it wasn't that long ago, was in power. Uh, there was a 14 trillion national deficit, national de- deficit. Today it's 30 trillion, 30 trillion, that's a mm. 30 million million. So, I mean, it, it's, it's really um, at, at a point where we, we really have to do something about it. And then 50% of this country have nothing to look forward to other than that state pension. And of that 50% who have got something, they're totally inadequate. You know, how many times have you heard somebody say, ah, I'm, I'm fine, I've got 5%, I'm making a contribution to my pension, and the employer is making a 5% contribution. And, and it's a joke because that's 10%. That's not going to keep you in the luxury that you've become accustomed to. And then add on another thing called auto-enrollment, which has been banging on around about the last 25 years. And and auto-enrollment is supposed to be coming in next year, and it's a joke already, as far as I'm concerned, because what they've done is they're saying all employees have to set up a a pension for for their staff. So 1.5%, they will make a contribution, and they want the employer employee to make a 1.5% contribution. At the end of 10 years, you'll you'll have brought that up to 6% each, and the government will chip in 2%. That's 14% at the end of 10 years, Jerry. that's going into a pension. Now, you might think, oh, that's okay. Well, it's not really, because when a a young, you know, uh, graduate comes out of, uh, you know, masters or whatever they're doing in in third level and they get their their nice job and they decide to go for the pension, they can put 15 percent of their net annual earnings into a pension straight away at the age of 23.
2: So, so at John, the age
0: of thirty, they can they can put in twenty percent.
2: Yeah, so it goes up with age, as you say. Yeah. It moves yeah. up along the way, and, and you can put more in uh, the older you are. And there, of course, there is tax relief, which is the big attraction in pension contributions. Well, I, I, I just act devil's advocate for a moment. So, yep. you have young people who have a mortgage, and you mentioned there the interest rates have risen, risen, risen. They yep. have childcare, uh, they have all that goes with, and at the end of the month they have very very little left and they've got to live how do you reconcile that with putting more into your pension that's a very
0: good question jerry and and it's the reason why People don't put into a pension scheme because you've, you've got to do your budget. You really do have to do your budget and say, can you afford it? Um, like, even though the pension for me is the best investment in Ireland, bar none, bar none. Because especially if you're on the forty percent tax rate, for every hundred euros you're putting into your pension, um, the government gives you back forty euro. That means you're up forty percent before you even start. Mm. So it's, it's quite easily the best investment. Uh, but the, as you said, can you afford it? That's where the budget really does come in. And, and, and I think that, you know, I'll give you an example of a... Uh, I had a, a, a Zoom there uh, consultation about eight days ago, and um, it was this uh, young man of 27 who had been mask because I asked him, how did you find out about us? He said, I was in your office about a year ago, and um, and I, I was with a film crew, we were doing a, uh, some kind of a, a, a short video on you, and, and uh, but you, you, we, I had a quick conversation with you, but the one thing that stuck with me was when you talked to me about this girl who came to your office um a couple of months beforehand who was 26 she was younger than me and um you gave her a spiel about pensions and she was setting up a prsa at the personal retirement savings account um and uh, and i said to this young fella that she was visibly obsessed she was visibly obsessed uh not at the uh, information i was giving her but at the idea she had already missed out on two years pension contributions so, which was most unusual. And he remembered that so much that when he set up with a multinational there a couple of months ago, the very first thing he did at 27 years of age was he joined the pension scheme. And he then came to me for a consultation to see, can he maximize his tax relief? And he could. He could set up a peer, say, AVC, uh, with us to, to put in the full entitlement. He was 27, so he could put in 15%. He was putting in 5%.
2: So, John, coming back to what you said there, the budget you're talking about is not the budget the government are going to raise you next week. It's the family budget. It's your budget at home that you need to go down and detail everything and see can you squeeze something out to go into this pension. Is that it?
0: That's it, basically. At the end of the day, you know, you're right. I mean, if you have childcare costs, you've got childcare costs, you can't help it. If If you haven't, you can't pay what you haven't got. And therefore doing a, a budget plan. And again, I, I'm happy to, to send you and all your listeners a pension planner spreadsheet, which is the idea to toss itself up, has all the categories and all the lists of various things. And you just populate those fields. And then you ask yourself those questions when you see the expenditure. Do I need it? And is there a better, cheaper alternative? It's really that simple. And then you'll see there's a deficit or there's a surplus. And if you have the surplus, um, that's what you plan with. Just let let me tell you this, that if you had, you know, the child benefit is 140 a month. You've one child. So if you decide we're wealthy enough, we can put that away for the child. You put it away under your bed because it's got no interest. And at the end of the 18th year, or in fact, it's the 18th birthday, it stops. So you've got basically 17 years, one month, of child benefit. You've accumulated 28,560 euro. You are still 14,000 shy of sending that same child to third level.
2: And that really does bring it home in terms of, you know, the gap that that there will be, and um, you know, and I'm I'm not taking away from people. People have, do their very best, and they understand, I'm sure, what you're saying, and all the the emphasis that has been put into this. So you're saying basically, start as early as you can, put in as much as you can, and you will reap the rewards down the road. Now, if you haven't done that, it's never too late, is it?
0: Well, it it was all right, you know, for the likes of yourself and myself, uh, who was still avail of a pension, um, you know, state pension. Mm. But I really do worry about the next generation in 30 years time, for instance, uh, that I don't think it'll be there. It's never too late to set up a pension, no matter what age you are. But the younger you are, the better it is. The younger you are, the better it is. And especially the fact that in 30 years time, there won't be a state pension there.
2: And that is, that is the real uh, big issue coming over the horizon to face so many people. You might think today that time won't come round and it's down the road, but it comes round, believe you me, faster than you'll ever think. So moneydoctors.ie is your website, John. Can they go yeah. on there as well and, and get that pension, you know, the the budgeting thing that you mentioned there? The uh, yes,
0: well, no, no, they write to me at jlo at moneydoctors.ie. Okay. Not to be confused with Jennifer Lopez now,
2: <laughs> Never, yeah, never. Yeah. But I J, have to say, J L O W E in the in the same class as well. In the same class as you remember, J-L-O-W-E. I was the first. I was yeah, the first to,
0: to use it. I mean, we've we got James Lowe as well, who's also another J Lowe, <laughs> but he he's a different league.
2: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, J L O W E at moneydoctors the p- plural moneydoctors.ie dot ie, and John'll be happy to send you on the uh, there Then you can work away on that basis. Exactly. So good to talk to you as always, John. And spores for the league. <laughs> <laughs> None of the gunners can help it. Anyway, John, be with you soon again. Take Thanks care. A lot. Take care, John. Take care. Take care. Bye Good bye. Afternoon. Bye bye. Bye bye. That's John Lowe, one of the best. He really is. And Tottenham are on a run, aren't they? They are indeed. It is great to see. It's the Ange factor, Postacoglu, the former Celtic man. He's the reason for sure. Five, four, three, two, one. Counting down the top five songs from this week of yesteryear. And today it's... The number five from this week in 1986. Yes, this very week. And we're going to a man who's an absolute legend in the music business. Yes, it's Mr. Paul Simon. And it's taken from his album Graceland that was released in 1986. What an album that was. It became Album of the Year and won the Grammy at the uh, 29th Annual Grammy Awards the following year in February of 1986. it was written by Simon himself and the story behind the lyrics is this. Uh, himself and his then wife, Peggy Harper, were at a party and French composer and conductor Pierre Boulet was there and he called Paul Al. And Peggy Betty, <laughs> so uh, that's the genesis. That's the 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 story behind the song, and it set uh, Paul Simon thinking, and he wrote this song. Now, when it was released first, uh, it didn't do that well in America on the Billboard Hot 100. It only reached number 44. But after the win. For the album at the Grammys They re-released it And it went into the top 30 in the United States We look at the UK chart In terms of our top 5 countdown And the highest place it reached Was number 4 there But today it's our number 5 From this week in 1986 It's Mr Paul Simon And yes you know it well It's a great one It's You Can Call Me Al Yes and Betty And anything else you like He walks down the street, he says, why am I soft in the middle now? Why am I soft in the middle? The rest of my life is so hard. I need a photo
1: opportunity.
2: If you'll get body Call Simon. Our number five, top five countdown from this week in 1986. And you can call me, Al. Terrific, terrific song. And we'll bring you the number four three two one at this time on Late Lunch over the uh, coming days for the rest of the week. Now, short break on the way. Michael English is joining me and before we head to the break, let me tell you that Michael is bringing his brand new show, A Million Medleys to the Carrickdale Hotel just outside Dundalk this Thursday night, October the 5th. I have a pair of tickets to give away to go to see Michael in the Carrickdale this Thursday. Would you like to go along? It's going to be a big, big show, I promise you. Tickets are selling fast. I have a pair of to give to you here's the question from which irish county does michael english hail where was he born michael english brings his brand new show a million medleys to the carrickdale hotel just outside dundalk this thursday october the 5th wonderful night in store tickets are selling fast and the man himself is on the line afternoon michael hi jerry Ah, very good. How are you today, Michael? Anyway, I have Hi. to say this to you again. I was thinking this is no joke. I didn't know I was chatting to you, but I was heading south last week, and I saw the sign for Castle Dermot, and I thought of you. Do you remember you were in here with me, and I was telling you about the Pitch and Putt Club in Castle Dermot?
1: I do surely, and it's still there, it's hail and hearty. I was down that part of the world last night. We were in Carlow, uh,
2: uh,
1: performing the the new concert, and uh, passed through Castle Dermot and called to see my dad and. Attention, Foot Club is still there.
2: I'm delighted to hear it because it's a nifty little place and I always <laughs> looked at it and whoever looked after it Michael by God they have a passion for it, it always looked immaculate. Well
1: Harwall was the name of the man that looked after it sadly he passed away a couple of years ago ah. but there is a committee there and they, they, they're they doing their best. Uh, Har was a great man for looking after
2: it. Ah, he was indeed. I'm delighted to hear that because you know what, the new road now going south. Anyway, we travel on by and we think of the days we had to uh, pass through the centre of Castle Dermot. Of course, where you're from. Hey, but listen to me, young fella, what a house you have in Kildare now. It's beautiful, Michael.
1: <laughs> I love living here. I, I, I lived in Portlaoise. I loved living there as well for... About 14 years, and I moved there, Jerry, because it was right beside the motorway and all of that kind of thing. Mm. And forgetting to show us here and there all over the country, but I decided uh, three years ago, just before COVID, I decided to move into a new house in Nace, and that's where I live now. And uh, spent all of the all of the time that we were off because of COVID, doing it up and painting and doing things I never thought I'd ever do. But anyway, um, I love living here. It's a great town, very good town.
2: And you mentioned the COVID, and we were keeping an eye uh, on you, of course, with the house and that. Uh, Cooking, painting, gardening. I hear you're an aficionado (laughs) at the whole lot, Michael. Well, I know the difference
1: now between a Dahlia and a Daffodil. I I wouldn't say I'm
2: a a Jerry Dahlia or an
1: expert, but I'm a... <laughs> I found out a lot during during COVID, and I learned to cook a bit. I learned to paint the walls. I, I, I actually I was doing things I thought I was going to have to get other people to do, but I ended up mm. doing them myself because I was locked up here. But um no, it was it was it was it was a, a suitable time to move into a new house. Yeah, you know the fact that I had a little bit of time off and and that kind of a long time off, but. Um, no, it, it, I love living here. I really do. It, it's a fantastic place. And then I'm very close to my father. He's only 20 minutes away. So that's yeah. important as well. So mm. it's good to get down to him whenever I can.
2: The only thing I must ask you, because you do a lot of traveling in this country and abroad as well, but particularly in this country when you're gigging, do you like to get back home or is it not practical at times to get back home when you're finished a gig when they're finished late on that?
1: So, Jerry, I'm a kind of a dinosaur when it comes to that kind of thing. I go home every night. And and I mean if I was playing in Dundalk tonight and draw the following night I'd still go home. Uh I just I love my own house, I love my own space. I think when the show is finished <clears throat> even though it's great to hang around the hotel and I do that uh for an hour or two afterwards, I then go home and it's I use that time when I get home before I go to the next show the next day. I use that time to Analyze what went on the night before and to uh, look to the future and write songs and sit at the piano and uh, come up with medleys for this tour that I'm doing at the minute. So, you know, there's always something to be done. And I think the best place to do that is at home so I, I do I, go, I come home every night
2: No place like home man you're the epitome oh, and yeah. fair to you see, I'm something like that myself I like to get back to base camp hey I see you're packing them in not alone here in Ireland but you're away with Paul Claffey to Portugal now shortly and the whole, thing, the whole thing is sold out
1: It is and it's a fantastic week for anybody who has ever travelled on a foreign trip like this the music trips with Paul Claffey they know what I'm talking about. There's a lot of repeat customers who come every year. We nearly know everybody that comes now. It's like a little reunion. But it's a fantastic week because I suppose when we're doing shows here in Ireland or, or wherever, Jerry, you know, you, you get to meet the people for a few minutes afterwards. And that's lovely. But when you go to somewhere like Portugal that we're doing next week, you get to hang out with the people for a week and you kind of live with them and they live with you. And we, we get to sit down and have a chat and, and whatever, or have a bit of food together. And it's a, it's a real... Bonding time is—it's a time for me to get to know the people even more, and for them to get to know me as well. It's something I look forward to. It's music. Music, music from the time you get up nearly to the next morning. There's very little sleep. You nearly need another holiday after it. But anyway, it's a great week. I love it. I love it.
2: Anyway, I had a pair of tickets for your show and I asked the question a little while ago on the show and I'm giving them to Linda Maguire today. Linda, well done to you and to everybody. We've had a load of people on looking for your tickets. Anyway, you can get the tickets. uh, Michael ie the tickets are available. Can you get them from the hotel too, from the Carrickdale, Michael? You can. You
1: can, from the Carrickdale for Thursday night, uh, and I believe the character, best wishes to them, I believe they had a huge celebration 40 years over the weekend, so Bad. we're going to carry on the, the celebrations on, on Thursday night with this. It's a brand new show, Jerry. you know, it's, mm. it, I'll be singing the songs that people obviously will know me for, but it, this is a brand new show. I like to do something different every year, and and this show, A Million medleys. it's after everything every, everybody's been through uh, in every walk of life, this is a show where you can let your hair down and have a good Good, real good time it's a feel good factor show yeah. lots of up tempo people on their feet and a million medallies of course is is songs that I grew up with and people grew up with that just love to sing along to that's the idea
2: Ah oh, listen it's one to look forward to Michael English .ie from the Carrick Tale itself you've got to be there this Thursday night it's lovely to catch up with you and we're going to finish out today with one of your well known songs best wishes with everything and Portugal coming up talk to you soon Michael
1: We'll have a game of pitch and put. sometime. We will. See you, Jerry. <laughs> For a fiver. See you, Michael. Take care.
2: That's the right, wonderful Michael English there. Paul McKenna's coming next with The Drive here on LMFM Radio. Stay with us. We'll be back 30 tomorrow. And here's the flavour for what it'll be like in the Carrickdale on Thursday with Michael. See you on Tuesday. Bye. Angelina, Angelina, please
1: bring... Your concertina and play a welcome for me. Cause I'll be coming home from.